Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and this is the fourth and final segment of my recent conversation with author Jeffrey Block regarding his latest book, A Fine Romance, Adapting Broadway to Hollywood in the Studio System Era. This fascinating new book explores the passionate and often rocky relationship between Broadway musicals and the movie studios that brought them to the big screen. To accomplish this, Jeffrey Block takes an in-depth look at 12 stage musicals and their film adaptations. And on today's episode, we focus on the final musical that he covers, Cabaret, and its many incarnations on page, stage, and film. But first, we take a brief look at the demise of the Hollywood studio system that was able to produce so many classic movie musicals, why that system fell apart, and what great musicals such as Cabaret were still able to be made after its collapse. If you missed the first three episodes in this series, you may want to catch up with those before listening to this one. Jeffrey Block is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Music History and Humanities at the University of Puget Sound and the author of eight previous books, including Enchanted Evenings, the Broadway musical From Showboat to Sondheim and Lloyd Webber, and The Richard Rogers Reader. He is also the editor of Oxford's acclaimed Broadway Legacy series. As always, this episode is made possible in part through the generous support of patron club members such as Roger Clarice and Neil Hoyt. If you would like to help support the creation of this podcast, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you too can become a patron. Here we go. We addressed a little bit a while ago some of the reasons the studio system begins to fall apart, but let's talk a little bit more about that because that's going to lead us to Cabaret, which is your final movie, which is made outside of the studio system. Okay, yes. So we can refresh our memory from earlier in this discussion because we really covered two of the acknowledged reasons or widely understood reasons for the collapse of the studio system. It was a gradual thing. It wasn't like an overnight collapse. It really was over 10-year collapse. So there was the Supreme 
Supreme Court order about striking down a monopoly and the after effects of that. It was determined to actually be a monopoly and they had to break it up. And I guess the biggest part of that is they had to let go of the theaters that they owned. Yeah. And, and once right, you let yeah. go of your distribution, yeah. you're sort of sunk. And one of the advantages of owning the theaters, and this is true for like, I don't know if Fifth Avenue did this, but other theater companies historically do this. They advertise a series and there's one real winner. No, certainly in a subscription, you're trying to balance the subscription and you want to have a couple like high profile things. But you also, from my point of view, as being the one designing those things, it gave me the opportunity to introduce the audience to some things they didn't know right. they were going to like. But imagine a system if you were totally hostage. That is, in other words, these film companies said, you got to show these 10 movies if you wanted this one. I mean, basically. And so- yeah. You got to take the good with the bad or the bad with the good, if that's what you got. In the distribution system, they needed places to show these movies because they yeah. were making, we can't even imagine how many movies they were making, but it's it would be like if they had to show them all in one place. You know. So that was a big deal. Okay. Second was the rise of commercial television and competing with television. The third thing, which you just alluded to, David, is the rise of independent producers. And that's a really big thing. And that does lead us into cabaret. So we have the studio system system and then gradually independent producers and three of my 12 films were produced independently oklahoma um West Side Story and Cabaret. For example, it was a company formed basically to produce Oklahoma. Partly by Rogers and Hammerstein so exactly. they could control it, which was smart. They didn't want to have what had happened to them back in the 30s and the 40s where the studios got to do what they want. They wanted to be in charge of everything. And it was called Magna. And yeah. that company produced Oklahoma. And their whole life of that company produced one other musical, South Pacific. And they were done. And then another example was West Side Story was produced by Marish. And they produced only two musicals after West Side Story. How to Succeed in Business and I think Fiddler. Then Cabaret, you want to know how many they produced? That was a combined company, a film company and a sound company. Allied and ABC, none. They produced some other movies. Oh, but not another musical. Okay, so compare that with, here's a statistic. I have about five MGM films of my 12, something like that, at least four. Yeah. Anyway, MGM between 1946 and 1955 produced 81 musicals. I mean, wow. they were producing about a musical a week. And even that was still a small percentage of the movies that MGM made. That's right. It was a higher percentage of MGM than other companies, but of overall movies, absolutely not. So it's phenomenal. Movies were cheap entertainment. Anybody, unless you were really destitute, you could see a movie on a Saturday, you know, and stay all day if you wanted to. See several movies on a Saturday because you're usually seeing a double feature and yeah. a cartoon and a newsreel. It was a full day of entertainment. Yeah, yeah. So Cabaret was produced by an independent company. The producer was Cy Foyer, who was a real famous Broadway producer, including Guys and Dolls and Silk Stockings. I mean, really big, you know, like major. Yeah. Fuhrer and Martin were the partners that produced a whole string of top Broadway hits. Can Can. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Really amazing. He was the producer. Now, a lot of people, and I think to some extent rightly so, when you think of Cabaret, you think it's a Bob Fosse film. And in a large extent, it was. I mean, I have no way want to minimize his achievement. And even 
little things. Kevin Winkler really showed me, he did a book on Fosse, really good book. And he showed me what he did as an editor, how amazing he was as an editor. Fosse, yeah. Yeah. Where's the song when Liza Millie says, East, West, North? But she tells uh, Mine Hair. In Mine Hair, you talk about the cutaways and that to the- And the yeah. cutaway, I mean, he uses film. That rapid and, cut technique, that, yeah. Like, he should use film. I mean, and cutaway is something that's a really a good film technique. Well, Fred Astaire didn't like it that much. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, okay, so Fosse directed it and choreographed it. And he did a lot of the editing and he did a lot of other things. But before he came on, it was a Cy Foyer film. And Cy Foyer was the one who hired Fosse. And why is that important? So these are the three non-negotiable demands. That Cy Fuhrer has when he decides to make this movie. He's only going to produce this movie under these conditions. Three non-negotiable demands. And these are three of the really big things that are different about Cabaret. And Fosse said, sure. They weren't arguing about it, but this was a given. The first one is toss out the older couple. Now, the one thing interesting about Cabaret is Cabaret is one of those musicals that even though this film version has enormous critical acclaim, it never really fully superseded Cabaret. In fact, David Armstrong did a fabulous production of the original stage version of Cabaret when he was working there and I was going to it. So, I'll just say that Bill Barry directed that production, but I did produce it. I was very okay, proud of that you. production. Yeah. So a revival of Cabaret was one of the biggest hits ever on Broadway in the 90s. So it doesn't displace it. So if you know the stage version, you know there's an older couple. The man is a pineapple vendor, or fruit vendor, excuse me, and his girlfriend is the landlady who's German and not Jewish. And eventually, when things get really, really bad in Germany, she just breaks off their engagement because she sees something coming. And this is Lottie Lenya and Jack Guilford in the original Broadway cast. Yeah, exactly. If you bought me diamonds, if you bought me pearls, if you bought me roses like some other gents might bring to other girls, it couldn't please me more than the gift I see. A pineapple for me. If in your emotion you began to sway, went to get some air or grabbed a chair to keep from fainting dead away, it couldn't please me more than to see you cling to the pineapple. And so the fruit vendor is not even in the film version. The Lot Lenya role doesn't get a song, and she's relegated to a minor, minor part. If you've seen the film version, you know that there's a young couple where one is a major um, department store heiress who's Jewish and a man who is passing as Gentile. She thinks he's Gentile, right. and they're falling in love, and this is complicating their relationship. Right. And then finally, he has a great scene, and you yeah. talk about Fosse's editing of that scene is fantastic. Absolutely. 
it's really where something. he finally says, I'm a Jew, and right. the, they get married, yeah. Oh, oh, I should say that he didn't make up this younger couple. One of the things about Cabaret that you have to come to grips with is that there are like 25 versions of it. But <laughs> the main ones, there was a novel, a short story collection that is considered a novel because they connect in different ways. And that's where we meet Sally Bowles as a story. They don't all connect, but it becomes a narrative through short stories like Tales of South Pacific. That's a good example, an earlier example. So that's by Cliff Isherwood. And it's important to mention that Cliff Isherwood was a gay man who originally went to Germany because he liked the bars. You know, he went there in the 30s. They had good gay bars. That's where he started writing. And he's the author, the fictional author of this story. I mean, he's the real author of a fictional story. He lived it and then he fictionalized it. Right. And he didn't acknowledge, or in those days, he didn't come out as a gay person when the novel came out in the 40s. So that's important to know because that's one of the things that's going to change in these different versions. But these young people, the heiress and the gentleman, those are people in these stories. And they also are in, there was a play a few years after the novel called I Am a Camera. And it was a successful play with Julie Harris. And then she does the movie version as well, right? So you can see Julie Harris in the film version of the play adaptation of the novella, sorry, not a novella, novel by Lishwood. So that takes us to 1955, the film of I Am a Camera. So Cabaret's 11 years later. The stage version doesn't have the young people, but has the older people. I've always assumed that decision was made because Hal Prince said, I want to have Lottie Lenya in the show because she brings an authenticity to this that nobody else can bring to the story. Yeah. Joe Masteroff, write something, make her the supporting. They're the romantic leads in a strange way. And Jack Clifford was also really a major Jewish character, you know, actor. Yeah, well-known character actor, yeah. And he gets a song that eventually is cut from a lot of subsequent productions, Mieskite. So that's only the first non-negotiable. Toss out the old folks and bring in the new folks. Second, in the stage version, Hal Prince, who was the director, thought that there was enough for audiences to deal with. In 1966, this was the first major musical about anti-Semitism and the Nazi menace, and also one of the first, if not the first, major musical about abortion. And he said, that's a lot to deal with. And since Issue It Anyway wasn't out, we're going to make the male character straight, basically. There are innuendos and implicate, you know, you read it finally, and so it's a traditional boyfriend girlfriend but with some other wrinkles doomed to failure and that's one of the reasons why it's doomed to failure you know because he i think he mentions that he hasn't been with girls i'm, I'm trying to get all this i haven't read my I book can't remember too. all the versions get mixed up but yes he's presented mostly as a heterosexual character right or at least a inexperienced she wants to room with him and she wants it to be more of a relationship than he did they're in the same boarding house together yeah so foyer he wanted to leave no doubt about clifford's sexual proclivities, no doubt. And do we know why that is? He just thought that was more interesting or does he have an agenda? What was behind that? He thought it was more real. I think that's the main reason. And so that ups the ante because in the film version, he's not Clifford, he's got another name, Brian, but he is, he's bisexual. That becomes really, really clear. And that's a big part of the plot too. A, a very memorable scene with the three of them, that camera spinning yes. around. Yes, oh God, yeah. And all of this is established before Fosse Exactly, and there's involved. one more thing. Yeah, that's two out of the three, yeah. yeah. And this one's a biggie. I mean, Prince, you have to go back to Prince in the stage, is that he thought of this musical as a hybrid musical in which... 
half the musical is done at the cabaret, where the songs are performed at the cabaret, and half the songs are sung like in real life outside of the cabaret. And both ideas were run by what came in common parlance known as a concept. Not a term that was being used at the time because they're making this up at, right. at this moment. But in hindsight, we can see it's sort of like half the show is a concept musical and the other half is a more traditional right. Rodgers and Hammerstein style musical. And there's a limbo area between the two that eventually Sally Bowles crosses in the course of the show through the staging. Four years later, Stephen Sondheim wrote Company, which was an unequivocal concept musical. And one of the things yeah. about a concept musical is it tends to emphasize a non-narrative structure. I mean, there are a lot of other things, but that's one key thing, really big kind of thing. Absolutely. The idea is more important than the story. Right. And like company, they're given titles which embody as a metaphor or metonym for the whole thing. So the cabaret is about... Life is a cabaret is the concept. Yeah, yeah. That was not going to be (laughs) Cypher. There's a lot of film musicals, adaptations or otherwise, about show business. Because musicals like to have songs where you have a show situation. The people are in show business, they're putting on shows, they're coming in and out of shows and so on and so forth. And those are all, whenever you're singing in a show, you know you're singing in the show. You don't have a real estate agent suddenly breaking into song. You have an actress or a dancer or a singer breaking into song, and it is closer to reality, so you don't have to have this leap of theatricality. Right. Anytime the character knows they're singing, those are known as diegetic songs, and we've already seen that Cat and the Fiddle is loaded with them. And it's interesting that Jerome Robbins, who, when he first saw early versions of Cabaret, he had this idea, actually that Foyer adopted, which is to make all the songs appear on the cabaret stage and the cabaret stage only. Meine Damen und Herren, Mesdames et Messieurs, Ladies und Gentlemen, I give you that international sensation, Fräulein Sally Bowles. You have to understand the way I am, mine hair. A tiger is a tiger, not a lamb, mine hair. You'll never turn the vinegar to jam, mine hair. So I do what I do. When I'm through, then I'm through, and I'm through. Toodaloo. So that is a big deal. Cy Fuhrer says, that's what we're going to do in the movie. We're taking out all those book songs. No one justified singing. So he added a few more diegetic songs and cut all but one of the non-diegetic songs. But even that's still people singing. They're just not singing in the nightclub. They're singing in a beer garden. And they know they're singing it. Yeah, yeah, they're singing yeah. German. They're standing there with the band and they're singing the song. Semi-folk song, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's the deal. One more thing about the, um, the sexuality thing. We're used to a lot of things now, but I remember the first time I saw this film. It came out in 1972 and I was in grad school and I went with a group of people. And when Brian says, screw Max, and Liza Minnelli says, I do, and then 
Brian says, so do I. I mean, it was a big, big moment. I remember it very vividly, and And, I was in high school at the time. And what I discovered in looking at early scripts, that originally, I don't know if I was going to ask if I could say this, but the F You can say anything you want on a podcast, exactly. It's not my podcast. Well, in the beginning, the early draft was, you know, fuck Max. You know, okay, I do. It's unclear exactly how that disappeared, but I've seen different versions. They even took out the script. Screw Max, but I think Fossey, because by then no one else was around, I think he said, let's have the Screw Max. And so I write for a film musical in 1972, this was a truly big effing deal. <laughs> or to use an expression memorably uttered by then Vice President Joe Biden, a BFD. Now I ended up changing what that was. I, I showed it to three people, that passage, and three people, and what's a BFD anyway? <laughs> <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I felt, I better explain this, you know? Yeah, I thought, well, Biden. You can see this on YouTube. You know, yeah. Biden say this is a BS. I remember him saying that. Yeah. Anyway, so it really is. It really is a big thing. But why don't you just come out with it? You can't stand Maximilian because he's everything that you're not. He doesn't have to give English lessons for three marks an hour. He's rich, and he knows about life. He doesn't read about it in books. He's suave, and he's divinely sexy. And he really appreciates a woman. Screw Maximilian. I do. So do I. You two bastards. Two. Don't go away. Jeffrey and I will be back with more Broadway Nation right after this quick break. This two for one. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. 
so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. And then what happened to Cabaret, eventually it became even darker in some of the revivals. Well, and this is where the movie has an influence on the stage show because yeah. they start to incorporate <laughs> elements of the movie into the stage yeah. versions of it. Right. It's interesting, though. I think powerful things can stay powerful. I mean, they're powerful in different ways now, but I'm totally persuaded that people really think that Cabaret is a powerful work in all its forms, really. It's an amazing adaptation, and it's the end of the era for me, 1972, you know, that's yeah. my stopping point. I wanted to do Sondheim, but I was persuaded that he's no longer in the, you know, the studio system era was my defining structure. Your next book can be the film musicals <laughs> of Sondheim, or a future <laughs> yes. book can be that. But I think this really does encapsulate this period that you're talking about, just as it's transitioning into independent production, or only independent production, the studios are gone. Right. Which brings me, I've got one more question for you. We don't seem to be done with film music. We seem to be in a period of multiple film musicals happening and several big ones on the horizon. Absolutely. And at the end of the book, I have a sentence, Coda, not so happily ever after Cabaret. After Cabaret, film adaptations entered a period of semi-hibernation and relative obscurity. The period between 1972 and 2002, they still made them. But we sort of felt like they were dead. I mean, there was a sort of general feeling like, oh, this is a thing of the past. You know, only one of the musicals really made big money, and that was Grease. Right. They almost all lost money. And not only lost money, that's one thing, but they were critical failures. All these shows, Chorus Line, Annie, I mean, they all have some things that are interesting about them, but it was a 30-year dormant period. And prior to that, they had been winning Academy Awards oh, yeah. all the time. In the 1960s, this is hard to believe for people, you know, unless you're my generation, four musicals won Best Picture in the 60s alone. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, West Side Story, My Fair Lady, Oliver, Sound of Music. That, what changed it? I mean, it's probably not just one thing, but we know a factor was the success of another Candorip show, Chicago. The film was the next film to win the Oscar for Best Film. Chicago. They did their own singing and dancing. So that set a trend. So after that is when everything changed. And so a lot of the dormant musicals, by then, they had now long gestation periods like Sweeney Todd, Phantom, Les Miserables. And these are musicals that were old by yeah. then. You know, 20 so and 30 was, years later, right? Yeah. 
And then that kept going. In fact, as I write in the, the very last paragraph, I write, as I was completing A Fine Romance in 2021, film adaptations of Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights, Dear Evan Hansen, Tick, Tick, Boom, The New West Side Story, and as of this writing, there are adaptations on the way of Wicked, Little Mermaid, Matilda, well, that's out now, that, yeah. since I wrote this, it's out. And so there was a revival, not only of film musicals, but of adaptations, like Sweeney Todd, Into the Woods. So these last 20 years are so much more vital for adaptations than the previous 30 years. Like a second golden age in a way. It's a second golden age and some of them are really very good. I mean, I think Into the Woods is superior, in my opinion, to Sweeney Todd. You know, as, as an I agree with you. Yeah, um, as a movie, yeah. But, yeah. And I find it just really almost amusing that sometimes, that, you know, that here's a movie that got rid of over half of his score. It reduced the orchestrations and got rid of the chorus and everything else. I mean, it's okay movie. I mean, I just don't think the singing's very good. I'm with you there. But anyway. And look, you know, really epitomizing what you just said, you talk about Wicked, it's now going to be two movies. That's right. I did read that. I know. <laughs> so, which is kind of mind boggling. Not only do they have this belief that they're going to succeed with a movie musical of Wicked, they think they're going to succeed with two movie musicals. Yes, and Wicked. they probably will. They very well may. Absolutely. I don't doubt that. But it's sort of the turnaround between you'll never see a movie musical again to where we are now is staggering. Here's another, if you don't mind quoting myself, of the five film adaptations of the longest running Broadway shows from the 1980s and 90s, the cheapest film to produce, Rent, cost $40 million, which made $8.4 million. So you see the problem? It's not worth it to people. I mean, 40 million is not a big deal, but you want to make 60 million or 80 million, you know. And according to Wikipedia, and I couldn't find a more reliable source in this case, because nobody wants to acknowledge what the answer is. The most expensive film, Cats, cost at least 80 million and perhaps as much as 100 million to produce. That's Cats. And they waited over, what, 30 some odd years for that. And how much did that bring in? Let's see. Do I even know? I think no one wants to tell you. If I knew, I would tell you, but there was no easy access to that figure. And um, it certainly did not return that investment at all. Lost most of that money, I assume. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you're right. There was almost a breakthrough before Chicago, and that was Evita. Because they had a big star. Yeah, I mean, they had Madonna. That movie was very successful, but we don't think of it that way for some reason. But it was, I don't know why. Actually, yeah, there's no two ways about it. It made a lot of money, but it's... I know it's weird. That's an odd one for me. But that's 96. So that's one that's on the, ver you know, like the canary in the coal mine is paving the way for <laughs> within a few years of that. Like it's time. I was so happy to work on this, on these musicals, you know, because, you know, the more you know about them, the, I mean, most of them are really, really interesting. You keep noticing more things and everything, but it was just really fun to do. Well, and the way you've approached it, you reveal all the layers, which makes it so interesting because there's the source material, there's the original stage version, there's the movie version yeah. there. Sometimes there's multiples of those things. And that's really interesting. It's really fascinating. Cabaret is like really interesting. I have a table of all the different versions. Oh, I should, one more thing. I mean, Isherwood wrote a, a real autobiography in the 70s where he came out. And not only did he come out, that was interesting. But he talked about who these people really were and how they were similar and different. So that's another layer even after all this. That's it's Christopher and layer. His Kind is the name of that book. Yes, I love this quote. I end the cabaret 
Ray chapter with it. I just find it just really funny. One of the nice things about the DVD era is that, you know, you got the audio commentaries, which could be really interesting and enlightening. And you also have some extras and different things. You know, it's nice. In one of the special features of the Cabaret DVD, which was released in 2003, Marty Baum, the executive producer of ABC Pictures, which had teamed with allied artists to produce the film, recalled his fondest memory of working on the movie. The incident occurred in 1972 after one of the two Westwood screenings. Prior to the screening, someone had pointed out that Isherwood happened to be sitting next to him. After the screening, Baum vividly recalled overhearing the original Christopher, and this is his quote, and when the lights went up, I was watching Isherwood, and he turned to the man next to him, and his response was, what a goddamn lie. I never slept with a woman in my life. I I just find that funny. (laughs) Very, very funny. (laughs) Jeffrey Block, thank you so much. It's been a delight to talk to you about a fine romance adapting Broadway to Hollywood in the studio system era. What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Back in Chelsea, when I- Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.